The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 16 Study Guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC16. This is Secret Church 16, Episode 3. Ready for round two? All right, here we go. Some of you were complaining that we were going a little too slow in the first one, so we're going to pick it up. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, so, uh, all right, so gospel, gospel, you believe the gospel, even if tonight you're believing the gospel for the first time. So uh, many areas, I think, I think about brothers and sisters who have worked in persecuted areas around the world. As soon as somebody believes in the gospel, the first thing that they do is they sit down with that person and they say, now make a list of everybody you know and, uh, and then circle the five people that are least likely to kill you or hurt you for sharing the gospel and start there. And so this is, so what we're about to talk about evangelism, this is not, okay, now we're moving into a realm of what some Christians do. This is just the overflow of you believe this gospel, then you proclaim this gospel. Evangel is another word for gospel. So evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit with the aim of persuading other people to repent and believe in Christ, which is exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do. Right after he died on the cross, rose, rose from the dead, he's about to ascend into heaven. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. In other words, they would evangelize. They would proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. So just think about this definition of evangelism. Evangelism always means proclamation, and it always involves communicating the message of the gospel using language the lost can understand. And that's important because this is one of those areas where the church, particularly in our culture, has totally misconstrued evangelism. People say, we say, well, I witness with my life, or I witness by being a good person. I witness by putting a smile on my face every day when I go to work or uh, live in my neighborhood. Well, hopefully that's a given like smile that's great but Jesus wasn't saying you're gonna have the power of the Holy Spirit so you can smile all the time he's saying you're gonna have the power of the Holy Spirit you can speak that's what a witness does doesn't get on the witness stand and smile he speaks he says something uh, the word for witness there in Acts 1 8 is martyreo it's the word from which we get martyr and those guys in Acts chapter 1 who heard those words they lost their lives and it wasn't because they were nice it's because they spoke. Brothers and sisters in India right now are losing their lives, and it's not because they're smiling and doing good deeds. It's because they're proclaiming the gospel. Evangelism is proclamation, and it's proclamation of the gospel. Evangelism involves proclaiming the full message of the holiness and love of God, the sinfulness of every human being, the atoning sacrifice, victorious resurrection of Jesus for our sins, and the necessity of repentance and faith for eternal salvation. All that we just explored. So evangelism, this is not just generic God talk or mentioning Jesus in a sentence and, oh, now I've shared the gospel. That's, that's not evangelism. Jehovah's Witnesses and cults around the world talk about Jesus all the time. They're not evangelizing. They're not telling good news. They're telling bad news about how to earn the favor of God based on false teaching. That's not good news at all. Evangelism requires the good news in all that it contains. It's proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we present the gospel, the gospel message, but only the Holy Spirit can turn a person's heart and mind toward Christ. I put a whole host of verses in your notes that show how the Holy Spirit fills people for the purpose of proclamation, of speaking. Just like I mentioned with a preaching professor earlier, when we proclaim the gospel, we're doing so independently dependence on God to bring people from death to life. 
Now, that doesn't mean we don't invite people to respond in repentance and faith. Evangelism has the aim of persuading people to repent and believe in Christ. Persuading. Evangelism is more than mere presentation of the gospel. It's persuasion with the gospel. Evangelism necessarily includes a call for the hearer, for people around us to repent of sin, believe in Christ. The call to repent and believe is part of the gospel. It was the P, personal response in the gospel. So evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit with the aim of persuading people to repent and believe in Christ, which leads to the last term. We've used it already uh, in talking about conversion patterns. So what is conversion? Biblically, it's the divinely enabled personal response of individuals to the gospel. So when they hear it, in which they turn from their sin in themselves, they repent and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. They believe, which I hope makes sense in light of everything we've seen. That conversion is, number one, a divinely enabled response to the gospel. It's not something that fallen sinners can accomplish on their own. According to Scripture, unregenerate people are slaves to sin, unable to understand the things of God, unable to obey or please God, justly under His wrath, blind into the gospel so they can't see it. They're not seeking God. They're running away from Him. They're dead in their sin. Apart from the gracious initiative of God, no one can be saved. We talked about this. Dead people can't come to life on their own. God has to do this. So I put Ezekiel 36, a passage describing how God saves. Every other phrase begins with, I will, I will, I will. God saying that. Acts 5, 11, 2 Timothy 2 all talk about how God gives. He grants repentance. By grace you've been saved through faith. We've heard it. It is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So conversion is divinely enabled. But that doesn't mean people don't do anything in this. It doesn't mean we don't have responsibility in this picture. We definitely have responsibility as we depend on, on God's grace. So follow this. Conversion is a divinely enabled response of repentance and faith. The gracious work of God in conversion in no way minimizes or eliminates the necessity and responsibility of sinners to respond to the gospel call. Repentance involves turning away from sin and self. It marks a radical break from a life of rebellion against God. Faith involves not only believing that what the Bible teaches about Jesus is true, but also trusting in him alone for salvation while entrusting one's life to him. Repentance and faith are not separate or, or disconnected actions, but rather two sides of the same response, turning away from a life of rebellion against God and repentance, and in the same act, turning toward God through faith in Christ. Neither is complete or adequate without the other. So this is what I hope, I pray people were doing at the end of that last session, repenting and believing, turning from themselves and trusting in Jesus, turning from sin, trusting in Jesus, which is exactly what we talked about in the P part of the gospel. So it's what people must do in order to be saved, Acts 16.31. Conversion is a divinely able response to the gospel. Indeed, the gospel must be proclaimed for anyone to be converted. This is huge. No one can be saved apart from receiving, understanding, and believing the gospel, which makes the task of evangelism critically urgent. So people can't be saved from their sin. Romans 10 makes clear, apart from understanding and then believing the gospel. How then can they call on him if they've not believed? How can they believe in him if they've not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is so critical. Think about this, especially in light of what we've already talked about when it comes to the unreached. So think about it. If all these people have, or so many people in the world have not been reached by the gospel, there's about 2.8 billion people who would be considered unreached. They've never heard the gospel. Well, if, you, if, if you're born, you live, and you die, and you never hear the gospel, then what happens to, we, to you when you die? What happens to people who never hear the gospel when they die? Will they go to heaven? Will they go to hell, even if they've never even had a chance to hear the gospel? That is a huge question. And we need to see right here, right now, that the Bible tells us the answer to that question. The only way they can go to heaven is if they believe the gospel. And the only way they can believe it is if they hear it. The only way they can hear it is if we tell it to them. 
So if we don't tell it to them, they won't hear it. If they don't hear it, they can't believe it. If they don't believe it, they won't be saved. They'll die in their sin apart from faith in the only Savior. And I know some immediately object and say, well, well, surely because they haven't heard, God will let them into heaven. I mean, it's a lot of people. We're talking about 2.8 billion people. And just think about it. I mean, maybe, maybe because they haven't heard, God lets them into heaven. I think that's what a lot of Christians think. But think about it. Just keep thinking. If God let them into heaven precisely because they'd never heard the gospel, then what's the worst thing we could do? We could do. Go tell them the gospel, right? And before we got there, 100% of them going to heaven. Now that we came and preached the gospel, there's a chance they're going to hell. Thanks a lot, secret church. Like, <laughs> keep it a better secret, right? <laughs> Makes no sense. They can't be saved apart from hearing the gospel. You say, well, doesn't God love them? Absolutely he does. He loves them so much that he's called us to take the gospel to them. That's the point. It's the whole point of why we're gathered tonight. See it, feel it, get it. In a world of religions, no one can be saved apart from receiving, understanding, believing the gospel, which makes the task of proclaiming the gospel critically urgent. Further, the content of the gospel message matters. So we don't just go with any message or message we make up. We go with the gospel God has revealed in his word. That's why we're spending time here tonight because this is especially important in light of distortions of the gospel that are popular around the world. Any gospel message that denies or dilutes the full deity and humanity of Jesus, identifies the human problem as anything else or anything less than our sinful rebellion against God, does not major on the substitutionary death of Jesus and the reality of his bodily resurrection, or doesn't teach that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, is an unbiblical gospel that does not lead to biblical conversion. So see how all this is coming together. A biblical understanding of the gospel leads to biblical evangelism, biblical conversion, which is radical. Conversion is radical. It's no casual thing. The Bible uses extreme language to describe it. Someone who's been converted has died to everything they had used to be and received new life in Christ. They have, in fact, been crucified with Christ. They've been created all over again. They've been born again. Conversion to Christ, neither casual nor superficial. If anyone's in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he's a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Paul describes himself in Galatians 2, saying, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Entirely new identity. Transformation to an entirely new way of life. It's radical. Conversion is noticeable. While no believer attains perfection in this life, a converted person is a changed person. This is particularly evident in a Christian's belief in the gospel, love for God's people, and growth in holiness. The Bible's clear on this. This is one way. Whether you know whether or not someone is actually a Christian, regardless of whether they call themselves a Christian, is that person believing the gospel? Are they trusting in Jesus alone for their salvation? not their works? And does that person's life show the fruit of trust in Jesus, evident in Christ-like character with Christ-like love? First John 2 says, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Conversion is noticeable, and conversion is permanent. In other words, it lasts. God never lets go or loses anyone who's been truly converted. While it's true that some may profess faith for a time and then fall away, their very departure from the faith indicates they were never truly converted. And First John talks about this. While God alone knows the condition of a person's heart, it's neither biblical nor safe to assume that anyone who has denied the faith, whose life shows no evidence of regeneration, or who has voluntarily abandoned the fellowship of the body of Christ has been converted, whatever they may have said or done in the past. So conversion, the divinely enabled response of individuals to the gospel in which they turn from their sin themselves, repent, trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, believe. 
Which leads to two key conclusions. One, all who believe this gospel will be saved from their sin. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period. That is great news. All who believe the gospel even here tonight for the first time, you can know you are saved from your sin now and forever. All who've put your faith in Jesus in the past, you can know you are saved from your sin now and forever. You will be saved from your sin. But then take it a step further. Further. All who believe this gospel have been sent into the world. This good news is not just for you. Luke's, Luke 24 makes clear that Jesus didn't die on the cross just for you or me. He died so that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all people everywhere. And he's called all of us to be witnesses to that reality. So get this. Put everything we've talked about together tonight into the, in a world of religions. We have been authorized, followers of Jesus, Faith in Jesus, we've been authorized to speak for God. The Bible says we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We have been authorized by God himself, get this, to persuade people to be reconciled to God through Christ. To call, to invite, to urge others to repent and believe. To plead for people to be reconciled to God through Christ. And persuade, plead, those are the right words there. If you just think about it, if this gospel is true, if all people are sinners before a holy God, if God has made a way for all people to be saved through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and if all people's eternity is dependent on hearing and understanding and believing that good news. We can't stay silent. Not when God, the God of the universe himself has authorized you and me to proclaim it so that people can be saved. And not when their lives are dependent for eternity on hearing it from us. So we relinquish all our rights and we rearrange all our lives for the spread of the gospel. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. See the example of Paul. He talks in this chapter about how he had a right to financial support from the church at Corinth. And he surrendered that right and rearranged his life for the spread of the gospel in Corinth. So hear the exhortation to us, you and me, in this gathering. We have rights where we live in the world around us. Most of us tonight in this gathering are Americans. We talk about our rights all the time. We cling to our rights. Life, friends, marriage, family, safety, security, health, happiness. We have right to eat, drink, watch, wear, read, study listen to, say whatever we want, organize our schedule, spend our time, choose our career, make our money, use our money, take our vacation, plan our retirement, to do what we want to do, go where we want to go, live how we want to live. But once you believe the gospel and Jesus changes your heart and lives in you, then Christ compels us to surrender our rights and to rearrange our lives for the spread of the gospel, to surrender our rights, to say on a daily basis, I have a right to do all kinds of things today, my life, my money, my family, but I'm going to surrender all and say, I'm going to spread the gospel with my time, my money, my family, my life. This is what we do as followers of Jesus. We put everything on the table, all of it, our schedule, our time, our career, our money, everything we have, everything we are, safety, security, our family, our life. We say, God, here I am. Use me however you want, wherever you want, whatever you want for the sake of the gospel. If that that means I pack the bags and move to the Middle East, move to India, then I go, we go. If that means I stay here and reorganize and readjust every part of my life for the spread of the gospel, then I do it. My life is no longer about my rights that I have to this or that. I surrender my rights, including my right to life itself for the spread of the gospel. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Christians in America, it makes no sense for any one of us to stand beside the cross of Christ while we insist on having and holding on to our rights. We stand before the cross, gladly surrendering all of our rights for the spread of the gospel where we live and to the ends of the earth. As followers of Christ saved from our sin, we become servants of others so that they might be saved by our God. 
Paul said, though I'm free from all, listen to his words, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Servant to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one as outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Hear this. Paul knows there's all kinds of people around him, Jews, non-Jews alike, people with different ethnicities, backgrounds, situations. What unites them all is they all need the love of God in Christ. And Paul knows all of these people on a road leads to eternity apart from God. So he says, I do whatever it takes. I flex my lifestyle. I make adjustments. I rearrange my life in order that others might be saved. So Christian, is this your heart? Is this your outlook on life? I want to rearrange my life to so love and serve others that they might know the gospel in my culture, in our culture, right where you and I live, and then across other cultures. Just as Paul talked about with Jews and Greeks, we go to people who are different from us in different ways. And this is so key for all we're talking about tonight. As we go across cultures, we work to contextualize the gospel. Contextualize the gospel. In other words, we work to help them understand the gospel in their context. And you do different things in different contexts to make the gospel clear in that context. It's just simple. If you're going to share the gospel, say, in the Middle East, then you need to know the Middle Eastern context. What do they wear there? What do they eat? How do they greet one another? What are their customs that you need to adopt in order to be able to communicate best? I go to some parts of the Middle East. I need to learn real quick how to greet men with a kiss on the cheek. Sometimes it's a kiss on one cheek. Sometimes it's a kiss on two opposite cheeks. Sometimes a back and forth for a few kisses. And that's going to be important for building friendships in the Middle East for the spread of the gospel. Back here in this context, I go everywhere, start kissing uh, men on cheek everywhere and the streets of you know Charlotte North Carolina it's not going to be good for the spread of the gospel so and whatever culture we're in yeah anyway so uh we're not going to elaborate there there's thoughts and we're not just going to go there uh so whatever culture we're in we're constantly contextualizing the gospel so we begin follow this we begin where people are with what they believe we learn their history we learn their culture in some cases we learn their language which could mean learning actually a different language other than English for example or it could mean learning a different way to talk about things. We learn their language. We learn their worldview, how they view the world around them. We begin with what they, where they are, what they believe, and then we build bridges to who Christ is and what he's done. We want to help them understand the gospel in their context, which means we remove every obstacle to the gospel. We think wisely through things that are keeping people from understanding the gospel. That's why Paul didn't take money and Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9, because he thought if he did, he'd, putting in, he'd be putting an unnecessary obstacle in the way of the gospel. He said, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So in the same way, we minimize cultural barriers. So take something as simple as, as pork, for example. We'll talk about in Islam. Most Muslims don't eat pork. If you're sharing the gospel with a Muslim at your home, it is not wise to have them over for a barbecue which sounds silly, even simple, but a significant cultural barrier that's going to offend and create an obstacle to reception of the gospel. So we minimize cultural barriers as we emphasize biblical truth. So we try to cross cultural bridges, but we never follow this, never compromise biblical truth. We remove obstacles to the gospel, but we never remove the offense of the gospel. The gospel will always be offensive to, the, to people in the fact that it confronts us in our sin, tells us there's only one Savior, Jesus, fully God, fully man, died on a cross, beckons us to put our trust in him. There's so much in that message that's offensive. And if we're not careful, even if, when, we try to share the gospel, we'll soften this or that part of the gospel to try, try to make it more palatable to people, but we don't have that option. We proclaim the gospel, the full gospel, confidence that when it's fully proclaimed, it has 
power to save people from their sins. So we're faithful to communicate the gospel, weaving individual gospel threads into the fabric of our conversations. So always talking about God's character, offensive sin, sufficiency of Christ, personal response, eternal urgency, life transformation, looking for opportunities to bring that together and complete gospel truth, to bring all those truths together in invitation for people to turn from their sin, trust in Jesus. So Christian brother or sister tonight, you and I have been authorized by God to speak this gospel. So we relinquish our rights, rearrange our lives for the spread of it. Ultimately, we give our lives to the Great Commission and a world of religions for the glory of our God. Paul describes this in the end of 1 Corinthians 9 as a race. He talks about how this is a race that requires sacrificial self-discipline, self-denial, stringent self-discipline, single-minded devotion. He says, Acts 20, 24, I don't account my life of any value except for this. I want to run the race that Jesus has given me, testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. So let me just say, say here, let me pause for a minute and realize, I realize if you're not a follower of Jesus, in this gathering and you're listening to this and you still don't believe the gospel, I realize you may think, be thinking at this point that well, what we're talking about now is pretty creepy. Uh, Christians going out and doing everything around here, around the world, so that people can be saved and can believe in Jesus. I realize that may weird you out a bit, maybe even offend you, but I wanna ask you just to hang with me a little bit. Th think about it this way, assume for a minute that this gospel actually is true. And I know that may be some far-fetched for some, but just try to assume for a minute that it's true, that apart from Jesus, you're guilty before God and deserving eternal judgment. And the only way you can be saved from that judgment is to hear and believe the gospel, the good news of God's love for you. If that's true, which I realize for some might be a huge step, but just assume for a minute that it's true. If that's true, then wouldn't you want people who care enough about you to rearrange their lives and commit themselves, no matter what it costs them, to share this gospel with you? Would it actually be the most hateful, unloving thing in the world, if this is true, for people who know it's true to keep it to themselves? So God forbid that followers of Jesus would do anything less than commit our lives and families and churches to running this race, to spreading this gospel here around the world, knowing the rewards of this race that when we do this, others will experience the eternal joy of salvation. Our neighbors and nations will be glad and sing for joy, Psalm 67, 4. And at the same time, we will fulfill the earthly purpose of salvation. Earthly purpose. So think about it. Follow Jesus. This is the purpose of your life on this earth, my life. And we've been saved by this gospel to spread this gospel. Like, I remember at church, one, one day we got to the end and we had a fill in the blank outline, one near as uh, thick as the book you got in front of you. And, but the, the last sentence that was fill in the blank is, will the gospel stop with you or spread through you? And I remember getting that point, challenging the church that a week later, a uh, 19 year old kid comes up to me after the service and he says, pastor, I just want you to know how much that meant to me last week. That question, it just stuck with me and he starts rolling up his sleeve and he'd gotten tattooed on his arm. Will the gospel spread through you or stop with you or spread through you? Now that'll change your sermon preparation when you start <laughs> picturing lines on people's skin. Uh, so I'm not saying that you need to tattoo. In fact, I'm saying you, you don't need to tattoo this on, but may you imprint it on your heart. Is this gospel stopping with you or is it spreading through you? Like you've got this gospel. If the ultimate purpose of your salvation was just your reconciliation to God, then as soon as God saved you, he'd take you out of this world of sin and suffering. 
pain and death, bring you to be with him. But he's left you here for a reason. You got a little bit of time. I've got a little bit of time. I'm surrounded by people who either don't believe this or never even heard this good news. And so many, we're so tempted, aren't we, just to go through Christian life, coasting through and not sharing this good news with anybody else. I mean, get to the end of our lives and some have been Christian for a year, two, five, 10, 15, 20, 50 years and have hardly led anybody to Jesus. Like, this is not why we're on this earth. Just to coast through till we get to heaven, we're here to proclaim this gospel to lead other people to Jesus. In a world where all kinds of people don't believe in Jesus. That's why he's left us here. So how do we do that? Especially when it comes to people, neighbors, nations, who represent the five largest world religions, animism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, atheism. So here's what we're going to do. That sets the stage for three primary questions we're going to ask with each one of these religions. Who are they? Just a basic overview. What do they believe? And I want to give a caveat here. In one night, I I hope we know, we've got a a relatively short amount of time to cover five major religions. So I don't want to for a second assume or presume that this study is going to be exhaustive. I want to be clear from the start that this is introductory. So the picture I'm going to paint tonight of these religions is going to have a pretty broad brush to the point where people from these religions may be completely dissatisfied with the way they're depicted because by necessity I can't include everything about every one of these religions. What I've done is I've tried to hit the big picture truths that accompany each of these religions in hopes that we might have a general overview of them in such a way that you and I might be able to share the gospel with people from those religions which leads to the third question we'll ask with each one. How do we share the gospel with them? The whole goal much like we talked about with contextualization there is to build bridges to the gospel so they might know and enjoy the glory of our God in Christ for all of eternity. So think of a bridge. I put in the notes there that classic graphic of the bridge of illustration of the gospel, which is essentially what evangelism sharing the gospel is about. It's about crossing a bridge to somebody else, stepping into their shoes, understanding what they believe, and then from there, helping them walk across the bridge to the truth of the gospel. Because when you think about it, that's exactly what God has done for us. And Jesus, he has come to us where we are. He's made a way for us to be reconciled to him. When I share the gospel with anyone, one of the easiest ways to do it is just to draw this picture out. Us on the left, God on the right, chasm in the middle. To use Romans 6.23, the wages of sin and death, that's bad. Wages of sin is death, that's bad news. There's the problem. The gift of God is eternal life. It's the good news. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So repent and believe. Be reconciled to him forever. So in a sense, my hope in the rest of this night is to help you be able to walk across that bridge, so to speak, understanding at least in small part where an atheist or agnostic or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or animist is coming from to be able to walk with them toward the gospel from their shoes. And I'm not claiming to be an expert in sharing the gospel with all these people or anybody for that matter. I'm on the journey with you, just wanting to spend my life for the spread of the gospel right where I live, wherever God leaves. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.